Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Our guest for this podcast is Dr. Bryn Austin, Director of Fellowship Research Training in the Division of Adolescent and Young Adult Medicine at Children's Hospital Boston and on the faculty of the Harvard Medical School and the Harvard School of Public Health. Dr. Austin has done very impressive work in the field of eating disorders, eating disorders prevention in particular, and has thought a great deal about the intersection of the prevention of eating disorders and the prevention of obesity. So, Bryn, glad to have you here. Thank you very much. So let's put eating disorders in context. How prevalent are they, first of all? I mean, some people think that eating disorders are pretty serious, but so darn rare that they're not a great public health concern. Could we put this in a broader context? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I think in many people's minds, when they when they hear eating disorders, what they imagine is uh, only anorexia nervosa, uh, which is the the hallmark of uh, which is uh, very thin, extremely thin to the point of. Uh, um, being health-threatening, um, and usually what people think of as a, a young woman uh, in that, uh, as a person suffering from anorexia nervosa. But in fact, eating disorders are a much broader condition than that. Um, certainly include anorexia nervosa, but also include bulimia nervosa, um, binge eating disorder, and then a range of uh, combinations of the kind of symptoms of purging or binging or unhealthful weight control um, that we're concerned about from a public health perspective, uh, much more common than just the most extreme um, case of anorexia nervosa. So if you add these disorders up, anorexia, bulimia, binge eating problems, and then the sort of general weight concerns that you're talking about, great numbers of people could really be affected, couldn't they? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just in the most extreme uh, cases, uh, meeting a psychiatric diagnosis for the for anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorder, we might be talking about roughly uh, four, five, six percent of the population, depending on where we draw the line. But in fact, um, many, many more people may have uh, some elements of these and, and experience a great deal of suffering um, and really uh, bodily harm because of their symptoms of an eating disorder. We have some evidence to show that just looking at, at um, uh, adolescents who uh, use a self-induced vomiting to control their weight, um, that alone may affect upwards of 2 million adolescent girls every year in the United States and 1 million adolescent boys in the United States. And, that's, and, the, and the boys in particular, I think people are surprised to hear that. But when you think about the, the size of the U.S. population and the size of the adolescent population, really, with, this is millions of youth. And then this goes on to adulthood. We're talking about many more millions of people. So these disorders, you're painting a picture, are serious both because they're prevalent but also because they're pretty bad things for a person to have. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about that second part? I mean, what are some of the consequences of eating disorders in people? Yes, there's a whole range of, of problems in the short term and the long term. And first and foremost, it's extremely psychologically distressing, and often people can also experience depression or anxiety, um, which can be debilitating. In addition, there can be bodily harm from some of these symptoms, uh, whether it's abuse of, of um, drugs from a, the pharmacy that are widely available, like laxatives, or self-induced vomiting, or it's uh, not eating when somebody should eat, um, fasting for uh, long periods. 
These can have an effect on heart health, on digestive health that can be permanent and life-threatening, can uh, on dental health, uh, on bone health. We see cases of osteoporosis or osteopenia, and what that is is a weakening of the bones um, when, when folks are not getting good nutrition um, at the time when they most need it, particularly in adolescence. Um, and uh, there is a, the, I want to come back to the point of the, the, the suffering because in adolescence we are especially worried about um, depression in that period when, when uh, we want to support youth in developing a, a healthy identity and healthy, healthy growth into young adulthood. So this will seem like a, a pretty basic question to somebody with, who's expert in public health as you are, but why focus on prevention as opposed to treatment? Now, you obviously want to be able to do both, but our country generally focuses more on treatment than prevention. Has that been true with the eating disorders, and why is prevention important to focus on? Yeah, that's a great question, and, and we have found in, in our country there's been much more emphasis on treatment, and certainly where the dollars go, there's uh, much, much more money is put toward treatment than prevention. But I think we're seeing a shift in the country where, and certainly in the in the healthcare debates with uh, some uh, recognition that preventing can ultimately be good for the our country, good for the people, um, people's health and adolescent health, uh, children's health, and also good for, for um, uh, the economy. And keeping people well uh, will spend less money on trying to bring them back from the brink of serious illnesses, uh, keeping people healthy. So would you tell us about the, the history of prevention efforts? an eating disorder. If you go back to when people first began thinking about this, how far back would that go and what sort of programs were there early and how has it taken shape over the years? Yeah, so so I would say that eating disorders prevention goes back a couple of decades and um, really dedicated folks um, starting a few decades ago set out to try to figure out how are we going to prevent these disorders and often having to do this work on little resources, little support, but they were committed to do this work. Um, and they really laid the, the uh, foundation for the kind of work that we've seen more recently. Um, mostly people have worked in schools, school settings, trying to reach uh, either elementary, uh, middle school, or high school, probably the most in high school age youth. Prevention, of course, a, um, uh, one of the first principles of prevention is you need to reach people at a time in life that is before most people would develop a disorder. So that's why the focus on children and, and adolescents. We want to reach people before they get too far down the path of developing an eating disorder. So when you talk about children and adolescents, that's a pretty broad span of ages. Is there any sense of what the, the optimal point of intervention would be if you want to most effectively prevent eating disorders? I think that's a great question. The needs at different ages are going to be uh, different, of course, and we know that there's also transition periods where people become more vulnerable. So there's a transition from child to the peripubertal transition, and that is, by that, what I mean is from childhood, uh, late elementary, into a middle school or junior high, and there are stressors associated with the transition to a new school. Um, there's also stressors that kids go through in, in seeing their bodies change and their relationships and, and what they need from the people around them uh, changes a great deal. This is a transition point we're concerned about and think it will be an important one to, to be able to offer prevention programs, eating disorders prevention programs that can help people prepare for that transition and to move through it safely and taking care of themselves. Another transition point would be 
between middle school and high school as people um, move into um, the later adolescence and then a transition out of high school, whether people go to college or they go um, into the workforce or they go into the, the military or other settings. We know that these transition points can be difficult for folks and we probably will need prevention programs that can meet people as they move through these different points to help them stay on a healthy path. So I know this is a rapidly developing area of inquiry and you and some other very committed researchers are looking at how to make prevention programs better. Where do we stand now? What would you say the, what, what do we know would be the optimal components of a eating disorders prevention program? Well, a few things that we know now are um, that that um, kids often are not in a healthy food environment or a healthy environment around how to think about or relate to their bodies, and that's something that we know that we need to change. Uh, having uh, healthy food opportunities for kids and also healthy ways of relating to food uh, um, are important, and that can be done through role modeling at home or uh, modeling at school of eating three meals a day, um, eating in, in a healthful way without the restriction um, um, can be important also, and healthy ways of relating to activity. I think an, the number one issue is to take the focus off um, weight per se or body shape and instead um, keep the focus on healthful ways of relating to food and activity. What your body can do for you can be a very important um, message and, and uh, way to, to teach children to relate to themselves, not just what your body looks like. In fact, that's not a message we want to emphasize at all, but what your body can do for you when you treat it well, when you eat well and stay uh, physically active, how much enjoyment you can get from your body. One other uh, point that we certainly learned from the first wave of eating disorders prevention is it's probably not helpful to have someone who had an eating disorder come into a school setting or a community setting and tell their story of how they had an eating disorder and recovered. What we find is that for youth who may already be somewhat vulnerable, they don't hear the message of don't do what I did. What they hear is the message is here's somebody who uh, seems to be a hero and they had an eating disorder. Maybe I can do that too. Um, so that's something that I think probably most people would say uh, don't do programs like that. Don't bring in someone who had an eating disorder to tell their tale. Um, instead, think about how you can create healthy environments for children at home and at school and in community settings. The last point you made about having somebody that suffered from an eating disorder not necessarily being the best spokesperson for this might be counterintuitive to some people because that's kind of the model on a lot of self-help groups for things like alcoholism and drug addiction and the like. I think that is counterintuitive, and which is why people tried it at first. And certainly it was the, with the motivation of coming up with a, a way to do uh, health-promoting programs for youth. But it's a, well, something that's a little different is when we're doing prevention, we're not, it wouldn't be with an audience of people who've already spent years suffering from a disorder and need motivation to seek help. In that setting, perhaps that would be uh, an appropriate person to bring in, perhaps to help motivate someone who hadn't sought treatment to do that. That's very different from what we're trying to do with prevention. And what we don't want is to set anyone up uh, at, as a, a role model for the symptoms that are exactly what we're trying to prevent. Well, I'm delighted that we were able to talk to you about this today because you're, you're talking about an area where there's tremendous human suffering and people that haven't been around eating disorders or have a family member struggle with an eating disorder may not appreciate the degree to which 
this is so common and how debilitating it can really be in the lives of people. You know, there are people who have very serious disorders and are completely debilitated by it, and others who suffer from it to a lesser extent, but it's really a very real problem in their lives. So it's wonderful that people like you are working on it and working on prevention because uh, if as these programs roll out and get better and better with time, literally millions of people could benefit from them. So congratulations for that and thanks for joining us. Thank you. So our guest today was Dr. Bryn Austin, who is in the Division of Adolescent Young Adult Medicine at Children's Hospital Boston and on the faculty of the Harvard Medical School and the Harvard School of Public Health. Please visit the Rudd Center website, www.yalerudcenter.org. Um, for a variety of resources uh, regarding food policy and obesity, including an email newsletter that gets sent out at no charge, of course, monthly, and a list of other excellent podcasts from visitors who have visited the Rudd Center. Thank you very much.